You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning, good morning. How are you folks today? Wow, what a wild and rowdy crowd this morning. Isn't that cool, what you got to do? Amazing. I had the privilege of baptizing both of my kids, and uh, wow, what an opportunity. I showed my girls this morning on the way to church um, the pictures of my baptism, and then right after I was baptized, I baptized Jess in this baptistry. Mm -hmm. Yep. yep. And uh, yeah. That's pretty cool. Both of them, and Sydney and Lila, and... It's just amazing God's faithfulness. Generation after generation after generation, which is what the Scripture says, that you are to teach the faith to your children and to their children's children and generationally on down the way. How influencers handle discouragement. Um, Some of you know this. Many of you that have been here for a while know this. But in the early 80s, my wife and I, after I graduated from seminary the first time in 1981, we went to Fort Lauderdale, Florida to my first pastorate. Um, It was 1,500 miles away from anyone that we knew. And I was 26 and she was 21. And she had to be the pastor's wife. And I had to figure out how to be the pastor. That sounds like the beginning of a country song. It, it really could be a good country song. And, and those people were gracious, and God was gracious, and they tutored they, they, they us. No, they tutored, tutored us. <laughs> they tutored us sometimes, too. They, 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 they tutored us and loved us, and, and then we came back here in 1984, 37 years ago, and connected and, and gets, got started here. But when I was living in the southern Florida, on the southeast coast of Florida, in, from 81 to 84, there was a whole lot going on in South Florida. As a matter of fact, that's when the AIDS virus was first making its way to our shores here in America, and it came through South Florida. It came through Miami, into Fort Lauderdale. I had a few people that worked in the medical field in my church, and they were scared to death. They didn't even have a name for it, didn't know what it was, um, but they knew it was bad. And it was, uh, was going to be real bad. And it was also in the early 80s when the uh, cartels, drug cartels, were fighting over who was going to control the, the drug trafficking coming into America from the southeast coast of, of, of Florida. And so the Jamaicans and the Haitians and the uh, Cubans as well as the Colombians, there were four of them that were really fighting. And so it was not unusual on a any given day that you would read in the paper that there was a a mass slaughter coming up and down I-95 because they would just be shooting these automatic weapons out the window at each other, fighting for who was going to control uh, the drug trafficking or the drug trade coming into America through Southeast Florida. So there was a whole lot of stuff going on in Southeast Florida, but in the midst of all of that, there was a tremendous construction boom that was also going on. Um, a lot of, in fact, I don't think it's ever stopped. They've just about completely gone all the way out into the Everglades, uh, almost to the west coast of uh, the peninsula now. But it was really rocking and rolling in the early 80s. Of course, it's a tourist area. There were a lot of sports <laughs> venues and concert venues and everything. And so there was a tremendous need for portable toilets <laughs> in South Florida. Folks, this is worth the price of admission right here, let me tell you. 
And uh, so there was a dude that started a company in that area. I mean, he was an entrepreneur and he thought, well, you know, this wasn't what my mama raised me to do, but you know, it's a good living and I can make money at it. And so he did. So he started a portable toilet business and he called his company, his name was Edward Roy, by the way, he called his company Jiffy John's. That's kind of a catchy little name. And it wasn't too long before you began to see them all over South Florida. You see them all the construction sites, any concert venue or whatever was going on, you would see Jiffy Johns. And so the guy was just making money hand over fist. But as his business began to grow, he was generating a lot of product. If you get my drift, I'm trying to be nice here, Mark. He generated a lot of product. And you could say ultimately he found himself up to his ears in product. But along with all of this product that he was generating, he had to get rid of that product in some way. And so his dump fees for all of his product was just enormous. And and he began to realize how much it was costing him to get rid of the product that he was generating. And so he put his mind to the the task to try to figure out a way that um, something could be done with this. And he discovered uh, something that was already uh, in existence, but he discovered a solar heating process by which he could turn his product into very high quality fertilizer. And so he began that process, but then it wasn't too long before he faced his second problem, which is what do I do with all of this high quality product that I've now turned into fertilizer? And so he then built a processing plant where the product could be packaged into bags and he could get distributors and he would sell his product all over South Florida and really all over America. And his stock went from 92 cents a share, it was a penny stock, to 16.50 per share in one year, all because of product. Mm. Now, You say, well, the product that I seem to generate in my life doesn't seem to come out looking that good. Well, maybe you just haven't gotten creative enough with it. But I'm pretty sure along the way that Edward Roy faced some discouragement. I'm sure that there were times when he just said, I just don't know what I'm doing here. This is over my head. This is too much. And he was tempted to quit and be discouraged and quit. But he didn't. He worked the problem. Now, you're going, how is he going to go from there into the Bible? Okay, very easy. I'm professional. I can do this. In Nehemiah chapter 4, we've been studying through Nehemiah verse by verse on Sunday mornings about influencers and how to be an influencer, which Nehemiah was. We've come into this story to the middle to the latter half of the chapter, and we find out how an influencer deals with discouragement, how this influencer Nehemiah dealt with the discouragement that the people of God were experiencing. Now, Nehemiah's task, as you remember, was to rebuild the wall of protection around the city of Jerusalem because it had been down for about 150 years. About 150 years before Nehemiah's time, in 587 BC, the uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came in and the Babylonians literally leveled the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed all the homes, they destroyed the temple, they carried the people off into captivity, and they destroyed the protecting wall that was around the city. And God had placed this this passion in, in Nehemiah's heart to be the one who would ultimately rebuild the wall of protection around the city. And he faced so many challenges that we've been talking about in the first three, uh, three and a half chapters. And each time he worked the problem and he was able to deal with them. But in chapter four, the latter half of the chapter, he probably faced the most dangerous problem that he'd faced to that point and the probably most difficult problem to get over. And if he did not get over find a way to work this problem, it would spell the end of the work 
And that problem was one that every one of us faces and must deal with. It was the problem of discouragement. The people who were working on the wall under Nehemiah's direction were just ready to quit. They were discouraged. Now, at this point, the scripture tells us that the work was about halfway finished, okay? So they were about halfway around the wall from completing the project. And, and I notice as I look at the scripture that that's a very vulnerable time in anything that you are doing for any project, if you will, even in life. They call it a midlife crisis for a reason, don't they? Because you're right there in the middle and you've got this, all this stuff behind you and you've got all of this stuff before you and you're no longer naive. You know that how difficult life can be and your kids are at a certain age and your marriage is, is that many years into it and you look at it and you begin to become discouraged. You know, I think that's the thing, the advantage that millennials and under have is that we have discovered that their life is just a crisis. There, there is, is there is no midpoint. It's just That's all right. crisis. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, and let's see how that works out for y'all. Yeah. Okay. You're gonna have to figure that one out. I don't we'll, know. We'll, we'll maybe have a midlife like rest. <laughs> I thought y'all been resting since you were born. <laughs> Boy, that was a softball. You that was good. Me up there. That, that was good. Was good. Okay. I'm with that. Get my jab into the millennial yeah, yeah. generation. Anyway, so this morning, I want you to look at this text as we walk through it, and we're going to talk about the reasons they were discouraged, and then we're going to talk about what Nehemiah did in order to bring them out of it. And I'll guarantee it's going to be one of the most practical messages you've heard in a long, long time, because discouragement is something that we all face. Let's begin by asking, what was the cause of their discouragement? Why were they ready to quit? When I think back in my life, there were several times where I was doing different things, different journeys, events that I wanted to quit. And when I think back on each of those, there were different reasons for each of them that motivated that feeling of, of wanting to just throw in the towel and, and because of the discouragement that I felt. And, and the text mentions certainly here several reasons as well for why they were discouraged so badly. The first one has to do with fatigue. Look at verse 10, the first part of verse 10. It says, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. Now, you know that discouragement is at a high when everyone is talking about it. <laughs> this isn't just Nehemiah who's discouraged here. Everyone in Judah on the wall, building the wall, is saying that. That phrase, in Judah, it was said, indicates this was a common saying. This was word on the street. We are worn out. We don't want to go any further. If everyone is saying that, then this problem began a, problem. a long time ago. <laughs> get a problem. That's the thing about discouragement is that uh, specifically discouragement that is brought on by fatigue doesn't happen overnight, right? It, there's a process to it. It happens over the long course of time. As James mentioned, verse 6, it says that they were halfway through with building the wall, which actually seems like pretty, pretty good news until you realize that as much as you've done, you still have that much more to do. Right. And when you're tired, that becomes very bad news. And so by verse 10, the fatigue was very real, it was very widely felt, and it created a good amount of discouragement amongst the people. And there are so many applications to this, right? I, I was thinking about this this week, that, that fatigue is such a common theme in 2022, it seems like. When, when I think about this year, it, it's like in 2020... When the pandemic happened, the world sort of shut down. In the beginning, there was obviously a lot of fear and, and you know, uncertainty, but it was like, like 14 days to flatten the curb. People were kind of just like, there was yeah. this collective sigh of relief. Like, like a two-week oh, vacation. Yeah. 
I can just stop being busy for a couple of weeks, right? It was right off spring break, and so it just was, it was like really, really, there was a lot of relief that came from it. And certainly, my daughter is not a real big people person, and, and she said, wow, two weeks of isolation is my life my dream. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's wonderful. And, and, and it was just like, everyone just kind of had this, this realization that I don't have to be responsible for every single second of my life for a minute, and, and, of course, as time went on, and it stretched out a lot longer than that, we grew idle, there was a lot of frustration, there's a lot of other compounding problems, but <clears throat> here's what I noticed in my life, and I've noticed it certainly in other people's lives that are close to me. I not only filled up those empty spaces with, with activity as soon as I could, because I wanted to get back to normality, I wanted there to be a sense of normalcy in my life again, so I not only filled up those empty spaces, I filled up way more than I had Created before. Created some new ones. <clears throat> I did. In life now, for so many of us, it seems busier than it has ever been. How many of you would say that? Yeah. You feel like there's a whole lot more going on than there was two years ago? Yeah. yeah. After a two-year vacation or whatever we call it? Fatigue is real. It is absolutely real, and it affects so many aspects of your life. It, it affects your relationships. When I'm fatigued, when I feel like I cannot go any further, it prevents me from adequately loving my wife the way she needs to be loved, from spending the kind of time that my kids need. It prevents me, in essence, from seeing other people's needs because it makes everything about myself. All I think is how tired I am, how badly I need to rest, how I just need to get to this one thing so I can get over here and just lay down and take a nap, right? And if anyone bothers me with any of their needs, it's like, I don't want to hear that, I can't deal with that, I can't even deal with my own stuff. Anyone tracking with that? Right. It makes me very me-centered, which is never a good thing in the kingdom. Hey, he's trying to say, don't call me up this week and say, Derek, I need a visit with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, no, you can. I will just, I've, I've developed boundaries to say, I can't this week. I'm sorry. Um, hope it works out hope for it you. works out. What about your personal growth, right? Your, the ability to do the things that you desire to do to be better, whether it's a hobby or just something that you feel like is important for you. Uh, I'm in school right now. Uh, I work out several days a week. All of those things that are values to me just go away when I am feeling like this. Mm. I just want to rest. So understand this. One of the godliest things that you can do is take a nap. Mm. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> Hallelujah? Yeah. Jesus himself naps right? In the middle of a really bad storm at one point, actually. It's Can we a get an story. amen? <laughs> amen. One of, the, one of the, in fact, the central observation of the, of the Israelites in the Old Testament is the Sabbath, uh -huh. which is based upon what? Rest. Rest. God created in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. It is not the mature nor the spiritual thing to do to always do more. You have to recognize that. You will fall apart eventually. You need rest. It will lead to your discouragement. It often comes from fatigue. I, I think it was Rick Warren that I heard say years ago, he said, if you're burning the candle at both ends, you're not as bright as you think you are. It's true. And, you know, that's some really, that's some really homespun kind of wisdom there, isn't it? And, and so at, at this particular point, they've been working hard. They had really wanted to get this thing up, and they were just getting frustrated, they were getting fatigued, and leading to discouragement. Then you add on top of it, verse 10 indicates to us that they were also becoming very frustrated because they looked around them, and it says, and yet there was much rubbish. 
Now, that's an insightful statement to a construction project, isn't it? When you get about halfway through, you've been working long enough that you've generated some trash. As a matter of fact, we've got a, a big trash dumpster down at the ranch right now because we're doing some construction on it. And, and I mean, you just, it seems like you just generate a whole lot of trash and rubble and just leftover stuff when you're in a construction project. And they were in a construction project that was a big one. And they were trying to use the old bricks or the old rocks the, that had been used on the old wall because they, uh, that be that much fewer that they'd have to create new and so they were chipping off the mortar and they were reshaping those and then they were building new ones and then there was all the lumber that was laying around that they used to put for the structure of the gates that entered into the city all the way around and just in general you know they throw their coke cans over to the side you know and all that kind of stuff and the Gatorade and in just general they were looking around themselves they're halfway through this project they've got half of it still to go and they look at that and they look at all of this rubble and look at all of this trash. My favorite part of this, this past year so far is when we had the roof redone. Uh, yeah. And when you'd walk through the prayer garden, it was just littered with beer cans. <laughs> from all, going, from what? the proofing guys that were working on the roof. What, what, How inspiring yeah. is that? How inspiring is that? But you know, that's, that's just all part of construction. And, and, and I can remember so many times in my life that that I've been halfway through something and I began to ask myself the question, why did I want to do this in the first place? When I was working on my doctoral thesis, I finished in 1988, so I was working on it the last two, halves, two, two years of, of my study uh, time period. And I got about, you know, one year into that thing, and, and I had all these books that, were, that I had checked out of the libraries from all over the city. In fact, when I was doing my doctorate, we had to go to the library. You know, we couldn't have, we didn't have a library online. We had to actually physically go and look for books. And, yeah. and so I had all these books that I had checked out of the TCU library, the Southwestern library. I mean, every, and I'd even had some of them shipped into me from various uh, theological libraries around the country. I had all these research notes and I had all this kind of stuff. And I looked at all of that mess about halfway through and I asked myself the question, two questions. How am I ever going to make anything out of all this mess? And second of all, why did I want to get into this to begin with? Oh. Because it was just like, you know, my life would be just so much more simple if I just could just quit this and could quit messing with it. I've said that at the end of every degree I've done. Every <laughs> and, it, and it's like within a month, I'm like, what am I going to do? Since I have three degrees, he's got to get four. Right. Yeah. Okay, all right. Well, Raise you know the bar. What, you, right? know, yeah. you know what that stands for, PhD, don't you? It just stands for pile higher and deeper, really. Okay, anyway. It's true. That's why you're getting the EDD, right? Exactly, exactly. When I was filming the Fearless series for women, I didn't have a clue what I was getting into when I got into that thing, but we had been traveling all over the country interviewing women. We had hours and hours of tape, of film on these interviews, and still had so many more to go. And then I had to go back and go through every second of all of those interviews and decide the clips and the parts that were usable out of the interview and then had to come back and put all that together like this giant puzzle to figure out how we're going to put all of that together so it makes a cohesive story so I could turn it over to Michael so that he could do his magic with the music and all of those kinds of things. And there was a point at which I said, you know what, I don't know that I can do this. I don't know that I'm going to be able to finish this project. That's when frustration begins to sit in, and if you're already tired, you're already fatigued because you've been working hard, keeping late nights, and then you look at the project and you go, this may be bigger than me, this is, this is just too much for me, then the temptation is to just quit. It is a very vulnerable stage. They tell us that your kids, when your kids are 18 years old, that's when you're done with them, right? 
So midlife crisis is apparent is when they're about nine or 10 and you're thinking, oh my gosh, that's when they go, that's when they lose their soul at about <laughs> nine or 10, just going into the teenage <laughs> years. And you think, how am I ever going to survive this thing? And you go, I'm in a mid parenting crisis here with my kids. Everything you do in life, you get to the middle point and it becomes frustrating. And that's when you begin to snap at your spouse, but guys, she snaps back. And that's when you begin to ignore your kids, kick the dog, and everyone wants to dump you, and you want to dump the project. Does it sound familiar? How practical is this? So you move from fatigue to frustration, and then you come to that big enemy. Failure. Failure. Look at the end of verse 10. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. That's where they were. Can't can't finish it. Can't do it. Fatigue. Can't get it done. They face the real possibility of failure. They first started the project. They were motivated. They were excited. We're going to take the bull by the horns. We got this thing. And now halfway through, they're like, I don't know that I can do this. And and it's interesting (laughs) to me that discouragement often leads to the sense of failure. When you get to that point of discouragement, then you begin to feel like a failure. And then that feeling of failure often leads to what? More discouragement. It's just this (laughs) insane cycle that you can't get out of. And so one of the questions that we really need to wrestle with, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this morning, is how do I deal with failure? How do I deal with failure when it happens? When things don't go my way, how do I respond? When I face it, how do I respond? We live in a culture that is, for the most part, pretty antagonistic to failure, right? (laughs) We say things like, failure is not an option, right? You heard that before? Take the word failure out of your vocabulary, right? The only people who fail are the ones who believe they will. The ironic thing about all those phrases is that they set you up for failure. (laughs) Very interesting. Failure is not an option. It is a reality. It is going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that you as a person are a failure, but failure is not a bad thing. So how do we handle it? The first thing you have to do, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on my Tim Robbins, Joel Osteen hat here for a minute, and I'm going to give you a motivational speech. Here we go. Get ready. I am a motivational speaker. Mm-hmm. You got me it. and Chris Farley. Yeah. If you remember that, you center. If you remember that, take ibuprofen because you your lower back <laughs> is probably hurting at this point. The first thing you have to do is accept the universal nature of failure. The truth of the matter is, folks, to all those people that say take failure out of your vocabulary and all that kind of stuff, they are ignoring the reality that failure is a part of the human condition and it is, in fact, a fact of life. Someone said it this way, if you never fail, you're not ever attempting. If you never fail at anything, you're not trying anything because if you try something, some of them are just not going to work out. And when you fail, guess what? It doesn't have to be final. Now, that truth can be found in every area of life. It can be found in business. How many people do we know in their biographies, that incredibly successful business people that failed 15 times before they were ever successful? It happens in sports. How many great sports uh, heroes 
are there that their story tells of overcoming so many failures and so many times when they fell on the track or whatever. We got to see it this week in Tiger Woods, folks. 14 months ago, they nearly took his leg off after the car accident, and he said, no, fix it. He's competing today in the Masters Tournament, the premier golf tournament on the face of the earth. Yet everyone had written him off there, and he's failed a bunch of times, and he's just kept coming back. In politics, Abraham Lincoln One of the greatest presidents in American history failed in business numerous times. He was an attorney. He failed as an attorney, and then they elected him as president. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? They're all failures. There actually is some sense to that, isn't it? We take the biggest failure, and we make him president. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That wasn't a political statement. That was just an aside. That was free. Whichever side you're on. Thomas Edison. How about Thomas Edison, who created the light bulb? And he... It took him forever, it took him decades to do that, and and he failed about a thousand times. And when someone asked him about those failures, he said, well, I don't know that I ever really failed, but I found about a thousand ways that wouldn't work. (laughs) But those were real failures. There are things that he thought would work, and they didn't fail. Babe Ruth, the Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of Clout. Who? The Colossus of Clout. The Colossus of Clout. The the El the El Nino. Great Bambino. The Great Bambino. There you go. Not an El Nino. The Great. Oh, the same Spanish. It's the same language, man. I got close, right? I know. No habla español. (laughs) No hablo español. Anyway, he struck out thirteen hundred and thirty times. So are you getting the point here? Not only that, but God's word, folks. Listen, God's word is filled with failures who became ultimately success. Moses was a murderer before he became the great deliverer of the Hebrew people out of Egypt into the promised land. Abraham was an idolater before he became the father of that great nation out of which God would bring Jesus Christ the Savior. Peter denied the Lord Jesus on the night of Jesus' arrest, yet he became the chief of the apostles. So, so get this, get this, folks. What I am looking at this morning, this is my Tim Robbins, Joel Osteen imitation. I am looking at a house full of freaking failures. And when you accept that, When you understand that, then you are ready to take the next step. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Do you feel inspired today? Well, you ought to because it is the answer. In fact, the reason that the first step of the 12 steps is an admission of failure is because until you admit that you are a failure, you can never become successful. We admitted that we were powerless and in our culture success and in our culture of glitter and our culture of glitz and want to take failure out of your vocabulary you're taking the number one thing that can help you to grow and mature in your life and in your Christian life don't take failure out of your vocabulary understand though that when you fail you're not alone in fact because we all fail Romans 3:23 says for all have sinned you just replace the word failed All have failed in our attempts to be God. All have failed and fallen short of the glory of God. And then, when we come to Christ, what do we continue to do? You continue to suck it up. You continue to fail. 
Because we not only sinned before we knew Jesus, then we continue to sin after we know Jesus. And that is why the central word of the Christian faith is the five-letter word grace. Grace is God's answer to our failure. God's grace saves us. God's grace keeps us. And by God's grace, we continue to move toward the kingdom of God. Are you with me here? So when you fail, you got to first of all accept that failure doesn't destroy you. Failure doesn't say anything about you other than that you are a human being, you are imperfect, and that you will fail. It is a universal fact. Understand also God's perspective on failure. I'm going to give you a truth, and let's just walk through this here for a moment. It'll sound a little weird at first, but just, just follow me. You say a lot of weird things. I do. But that's okay. Obedience to Christ <laughs> implies failure. That was weird. It is. Obedience to Christ implies failure. Now, follow me here for a moment. What is obedience to Christ? It is obedience, first and foremost, to Scripture what Christ has commanded in the Scripture. So when the Scripture gives a commandment and I am obedient to that commandment, I am obeying Christ. Following me? So let's use an ex- Following me? Okay. Um, so <laughs> They're not sure they want to yeah, follow you. <laughs> yeah. Where are we going here? So let's, let's look at a first example. Colossians 3.9. Paul says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. That is an imperative in the Greek. It means it's a command. Paul is not suggesting this. He's not asking you to pray about it. Do not lie to one another. That is a command of God. So what that means then is if you don't lie to one another and you live and walk in truth, you are being obedient to the scripture and therefore obedient to Christ. If you lie, you are being disobedient to scripture and therefore disobedient to Christ. Very straightforward so far. But let's look at another one, James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, there's two commands here. There's two imperatives, confess and pray. But I want you to focus on that first one for a moment. What does obedience to that command look like? It looks like confessing your sin. What does disobedience to that command look like? Keeping it secret. In both instances, obedience and disobedience, sin is present. Sin is implied. It is assumed that you will have something to confess. Otherwise, you wouldn't be commanded to confess it. There's an implication here that you have sin that you will have to deal with. And so obedience to God in those moments is not just don't sin, because that's the goal, but you're not going to meet that goal. So when you do, what does obedience look like? It looks like confessing it, not only to God, but to one another. Now, why is that implied in the Scripture? Why is that the assumption of Scripture? Because of what James just read a moment ago, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are broken. All of us are, manufa- are malfunctioning. And, and, and so failure is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's implied in your obedience to God And when you are obedient to confess that sin and repent of it, God is faithful to forgive and apply his grace over this. You following me? Have you ever heard that before? You will, God will, it's assumed that you're going to sin. God is not blindsided every time you you sin. He he understands. It's the whole reason Jesus came, as Mm. as a sacrifice for your sin. Now the question becomes, 
So what does that mean for us? Does that mean we could just live however we want, and as long as we're <laughs> confessing it, then God's grace is going to cover it? Paul anticipates this exact question. Romans 6.1, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answers that question, verse 2, by no means. <laughs> may it never be. May Not it on never your life. be. Yeah, no. <laughs> in other words, the goal of the Christian life is to become like Jesus, to be like Jesus in every aspect of our life. But here's the reality. You're not Jesus, and neither am I. You will fail, and so will I. And so though alive in the Spirit, we have a sin nature that we have to contend with. It is constantly at odds with us inside. And so when that inevitable failure takes place, here's what obedience looks like. Confession to God and to someone else, receiving forgiveness and grace, and then here's the last part. It's the hardest part, and then you move on. You just move on. It's dealt with. It was already dealt with on the cross. But your confession, you're releasing it. You're allowing the grace of God to then come back into your life, and you move on. Now, failure, then, is how we learn. It, it's, a lear it's, a, it's how we grow in the image of Christ. And it is forgiven by God when there's confession and repentance. Amen. So you put all this stuff together, because we're dealing with that midway point when they became so discouraged that they were ready to quit, and the text is telling us why. They were at this place of quitting. They were tired. They were worn out. They were frustrated. They couldn't see through all of the rubbish and all of the stuff that was around them, and, and they, they looked at it, and they said, we can't do this, and so they faced the very real possibility of failure, and then the crowning blow, as it were, comes upon them, and out of all of this, there is fear added to the equation. So let's, let's look at discouragement is a matter of fatigue, frustration, failure, and now fear. In verses 11 and 12, they're, they're reiterating what people were saying all around them. It says, and our enemies have said. See, there were people that did not want them to rebuild the wall. We talked about Sanballat and Tobiah last week, these little petty governors that didn't want the city to be protected again. And they tried to ridicule them, to demoralize them in the last text, and that didn't work. And so now they're beginning to threaten death. They're going to threaten. We're going to stop you from doing this, and if we have to chop your head off, we're going to do it. And so they were spreading this word around, and it says, our enemies said, they will not know or they will not see. In other words, we're going to sneak up on them until we come among them and we kill them and we put a stop to this work. That's what the enemy wanted. They wanted to stop the work. Verse 12, he says, and the Jews who lived near them, these are their own people who are you know, carrying on what they're hearing, came and they told us. And they told us, it says, 10 times. In other words, over and over and over. And they said, listen, this is what's going to happen. They will come upon us and come against us from every place where you may turn. They're going to kill us. And then they're going to kill our families. They're going to kill our wives. They're going to kill our sons. They're going to kill our husbands. They're going to kill our children. They're going to kill every one of us if we don't stop. This work on the wall. Now, in that situation, don't you think some fear would be normal? Is fear normal? Do you want the Christian answer or the church answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take the Christian answer, okay? Yes. Yeah. Fear is a normal response. In fact, it's a God-given emotion. Yep. 
that when it is taken out of whack, it can become very destructive. So really the question, folks, that we need to be asking this morning is not if you have fear. That's an invalid question. The answer to that, if we tell the truth, is yes, every one of us. The question is, does fear have you? Mm. That's a whole different ballgame. Do you have fear? Yes. If you're a human being, you have to say yes. But the second question then that we really need to grapple with, it, does fear have you? In other words, the question is, will you allow that fear to drive your life? Because the truth of the matter is, fear is the great debilitator. Fear will destroy everything you want to do. Fear will sideline you, it will derail you, and it will destroy you if you allow it to do so. Fear, first of all, will keep you from attempting anything worthwhile in your life. And then if you get over that fear and you do make an attempt, then fear will try to derail you from completing that thing and accomplishing that thing. So for that reason, the scripture calls fear a trap. Mm. It's a trap that the enemy sets for us. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare. In other words, the fear that we have as human beings lays a snare for us, and whoever, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So fear is a natural thing, but fear also, when you let it take control of you, becomes a trap, and it waits for you to come along so it can clamp its teeth around your ankles and stop you. So there are really only two options in life. You either move through life in faith, or you move back from life in fear. And it struck me this week how we use both fear and faith wrongly. Mm. In the Christian community, and I hear this, and it just sounds so good, and sounds so spiritual, and it sounds so all of those things. Sometimes we use faith as an excuse for our stupidity. Like, I'm going to jump off this cliff and I'm trusting Jesus. Well, let me tell you what that is. That's stupid. That's not faith. That's stupid. And then sometimes we use fear as an excuse for our laziness and our lethargy of not getting up and doing anything or attempting anyway. So, so get this. Faith is not a license for irresponsibility and fear is not an excuse for lethargy. Fear is not an excuse for doing nothing. And, and in fact, it's really so interesting. Usually what the Father tells us to do by faith are things that we already know we're supposed to be doing. It's not like, you know, God writes on your wall and says, now I want you to jump off this cliff and just trust me. I don't, he doesn't do that very often. But what he does do is he has told us what he wants us to do, and we know, it, we know it in his word, and he just simply says, now, are you going to trust me here? Or are you going to let your fear pull you back? So faith doesn't mean coming up with all these wild and crazy schemes and ideas that we're just going to do in faith. The wild and crazy schemes are already revealed for us in God's word, and he says, now, will you trust me? Will you walk in faith, or will you move backward in fear. Now, I'm going to take about five minutes, and I'm going to do something I've never done. I'm going to tell you a story that I've never told anyone. I think my wife knows this story. So that would be three of us. This part is not 
part I haven't told. I've told this part. I've struggled with depression my entire life. Many of you have heard me talk about that. It took me many, many years of ministry to get over the fear of being able to say that publicly and openly, but in the last 20-something years, I've been able to do that. I, I, I experienced depression as a little boy. I just didn't know what to call it. And later I can look back and I go, well, that was just pure de depression. That's all it was. And it has plagued me really most of my life. In fact, I just fought it and didn't talk about it and didn't even talk to my wife about it for the first 20 years of our marriage. And, and I just tried to just suck it up and, and, and to kind of get my way through. And it wasn't until about the last 15 years of my life that I finally sought medical intervention because what I began to figure out was that, yeah, there were some emotional issues, but when I dealt with the emotional issues, sometimes the depression still came back and that my, my brain is, is broken and that there's some problems chemically in my brain. And so I sought medical intervention and, and I'm thankful to God for that technology. But for most of my, I'm 68 years old, so for the first, what, 50 years of my life, at least I, everything I did in my life was uphill against depression. Going to college, getting through university, getting through graduate school, you know, starting a church and all of these things. It was always like pulling this giant 500-pound weight uphill in order to, those of you that experienced depression, you know what I'm talking about, right? Are you tracking with this right now? Okay, and, and, and we, have this, we have this thing in our culture that shames people about into not talking about depression because there's something broken and why aren't you happy in Jesus and why aren't you having victory in Jesus and, you know, and all of those kinds of things. And so we just kind of stuff it in and we, we hold it into ourselves. So if this incur story encourages some of you, think, I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm going to tell it for the first time in my adult life. I can remember one time. And I got emotional in the first service, and so I'm not going to do this again. Slap me if I do. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Did I just give permission for violence? Maybe. <laughs> just call me Chris Rock. <laughs> and you're the Will Smith of my life. Man. Man. I remember one time, very clearly, it stayed with me. Over 20 years ago, it was before you were even here. You were maybe like a junior in high school or something driving, at that time. Mm -hmm. Driving everybody crazy is what you've driving. Absolutely. But in 40 years of, of teaching and preaching, do 40 times 52, and you're going to get pretty close to how many times in 40 years of ministry that I have done what I'm doing right now. It's a boatload. It makes me tired to even think about it. And I can honestly confess to you that well over 50%, probably closer to 75% of the times, for the first 50 years of my life that I got up and te taught, I didn't want to. I was fighting depression. I didn't want to be here. I had already fought the battle of getting out of bed that morning, and that in itself was a battle by itself, and I didn't want to do that. And, and I, would, I would come up here, and I would, and I would teach, and, and God would be gracious, and he would allow me to step out of that depression for that period of time and, and then when I would step down I would go back into it and, and until I submitted and realized that I had a physical problem up here and began to, to seek medical intervention it was, it was that way almost every Sunday I can say that there were only two Sundays in 40 years that I didn't get out of bed because of it and I can confess that now I said that this morning in the first service it's the first time I've ever said that there were only two times in 40 years that it was bad enough where I just pulled the covers over my head and said, said to my wife, I can't do this today. And my life helpmate, my faithful wife said, that's okay, James, I'll take care of it. She would come. She would put something together. 
and where God's people were edified and, and, and I was able just to not do it. Only twice in my ministry that I just flat couldn't, couldn't do it. But about 20 years ago, I was really struggling with it that morning and I was prepared and everything. I just didn't want to be here. I, I just wanted to go home and go to bed. And then about five or six minutes before I was to come up on stage and the worship time was over with, someone really attacked me, a personal attack. They just came up and unloaded on me. I remember who it was. I do not remember what it was about. It could have been true. It could have not been true. I don't know. But it was a drive-by shooting about five minutes before I was about to come up here. And, and I just, I had to get out of here. I walked outside. I walked back here on this and stood a, a, and leaned against this back wall of this auditorium where no one could see me, I thought, to be alone and to say, Lord, I can't do this today. Lord, I can't do this today. God, I cannot do this today. And a good friend of mine uh, who was a real faithful supporter happened to see me. And he walked up and put his arm around me, and he said, James, what's, ha what's wrong? And I, I didn't tell him. I just simply said, Robert, I can't do this today. And I was crying. And I just said, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And he said, well, yes, you can. And he put his arm around me, and he prayed for me. And he just prayed, just a friend, caring friend. Christian brother. And then he said, let's go. And he walked in here with me. And he, he left me at the back door there because I had to walk. Had to walk the, what, he didn't walk you down the aisle? The green mile. <laughs> I had to walk the green mile by myself. <laughs> you know, and, and every step was, Lord, I can't do this today, Lord. I can't do this today. I can't do this today. I can't do this. I don't want to do this today. I step up on stage. And when I opened my mouth, he lifted it, the fear. It was fear. It wasn't just depression. It was fear. I was overwhelmed with fear. And I was able to do that. And it was, it was like the whole time I was preaching, I went, I don't know who's saying this. I don't know who's doing this. This is notes that I prepared. This can't be coming from me. And then the moment I stepped down from the stage, it was back on me. But, but God's grace for me in that moment and so many times in 40 years was that he would deliver me when I would trust him and put my foot in that water. Mm. You see, he didn't take the depression off of me. He didn't take the fear off of me that morning until I got on this stage and opened my mouth. And when I did, it was gone. And when I stepped down, it was back. Because, you see, there were some things that he needed to teach me, and he was trying to teach me, and I was unteachable, and I wasn't willing to learn, and all those kinds of things. And what I'm trying to say to this is if I had been unwilling and not able and hadn't had a Christian brother come alongside me that morning and say, yes, you can do this, James. Yes, you can do it. Lord Jesus is going to do it for you. I would have never been able to experience that victory of faith. You see, he didn't take the depression away because my depression wasn't a spiritual problem. It wasn't an emotional problem. It was a medical problem because my brain is broken in the area of the production of certain chemicals, as some of you and as other people are. And if that encourages you, then God bless you. But see, that's what fear wants to do.
And fear and depression are kissing cousins, folks. They come together. You'll rarely ever find depression that it doesn't have fear also attached to it. And at the end of the day, it's not going to be the depression that gets you. It's going to be the fear that gets you. And what you have to do is you have to say no to that. No, 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 no. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep moving. And I'm going to trust you, Father, to do this. I do not know why God called me to the ministry. I still do not understand that. I don't like the spotlight. I don't like the stage. I'm a depressed failure. The only answer I can come up to is what 1 Corinthians says, that God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And I'm the fool of all fools, as you are. You bunch of fools. Accept it. Yeah, it's true. Do it. I'm gonna, let me just, can I wrap this up? You can wrap it up. I'm going to do it quickly because I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to take, I want to use that as an, as an example for the prescription for this because I think there's so many aspects of what he just shared that dovetails right into what we originally had planned on, on doing here. God uses three specific mechanisms as a prescription against discouragement. The first one is Relationships. And it was very clear in that story. It took other people to come alongside and encourage to bring him to that point of being willing to do what God was asking him to do. Nehemiah does this. He reorganizes the project. They were all in groups building. In verse 13, it says that he, he reorganized them into family groups. He knew that part of the way to get them out of discouragement was to be with the people that they loved and that, that would encourage them along the way. And, and, and this is a, a really, you know, just practical way of doing that. Now, some of you may be thinking, if I were reorganized into my family groups, that would have made me more discouraged, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, certainly not all families are, are created equally. Um, they certainly, some of them are more tumultuous than others. But let me just say that families matter to God. They're designed by God. They're intended to be a source of joy. And there are times, more often than not, that when your nuclear family uh, becomes a, a problem, God provides another one. There's a particular teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 where he is teaching. And it says, while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. And so they're, they're asking a guy, hey, we're here to talk to Jesus. He's in there teaching all these people. Can you let him know that we're here? And, and verse 47, the man goes in and tells him, your, your mother and your brothers would like to speak with you. In verse 48, he says, it says, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Which I imagine was probably pretty confusing for the guy. He was like, them. I, I don't know. How do you not know your mothers and your brothers, right? What's up with you? Yeah. But look at what Jesus says, verse 49. It says, stretching out his hands towards his disciples, mm. he said, here are my mother and my brothers. That's right. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. You see, Jesus redefines in a lot of ways what the family looks like. It's not just the nuclear family that matters. It's those who do the will of my Father in heaven. There is not a better verse, I don't think, in the New Testament that, that shapes the way we should understand what church life is supposed to look like. It's not a place we go. It's not something we do. We say oftentimes that church is not a building. It's a people. It's not a people. It is a family. It is my brothers and my sisters and my mothers, those who do the will of the Father in heaven. 
I remember a, a time when a woman came to me, having just gotten out of the hospital, and she was upset that no one had come to see her. And this was early on. This was before I think I was even, I, I, it was early on. And, and I honestly, I didn't even realize she still attended the church. <laughs> and I asked her, I said, well, I said, who are, what groups, what groups do, you, do you belong to? And she said, well, I've never joined a group. And I said, well, where do you serve? She said, I, haven't had, I, haven't, I don't have time to serve. I just, I come on Sundays. And I said, well, who are you connected to here? Like, who are you friends with? And she said, I, I'm, not, I'm not really connected here. And I said, okay, okay well, who, who did you tell that you were in the hospital? And she said, I didn't. And it was about that moment that her face, you could see that putting two and two together. And I said, well, we would have loved to have come to see you, but no one knew you were in the hospital. Hmm. You didn't tell anybody. You see, we say around here a lot, when life happens, who's going to care about it? Who's going to care? You could walk out this door and life can happen. Mm-hmm. Who is going to come alongside you like that man did to James and say, hey, let me put my arm around you. Let me pray over you. Let me encourage you in this time of discouragement that you can continue to do what God is calling you to do. He uses relationships he asks us to remember his faithfulness, and I imagine, James shared this first service, that, that there have been a lot of times after that Sunday where you felt that pressure and you remembered that. I just went back because the Scripture says, yeah. remember, remember. Remember. God's you got faithfulness. got me through me there. You can do it today, and he Absolutely. does. That's, a, that's an anchor point. In fact, in the Old Testament, they would use Ebenezer stones to signify these moments when God had done something. Those were meant to be a, a, a memory They would see that and they would go, yeah, this is a reminder of God's goodness in that time. And then he asks us to resist. I love, he says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. (laughs) Don't just sit on your hands. Don't just go, well, God's got the victory. God does have the victory and he calls you to fight for it. That's what he said to the Old Testament people of God going into the promised land, right? Here is the land that I have given to you, past tense. Now go take it. This happens over and over again. When God gives you something, when he promises something, it does not not give an excuse to just sit around and wait for it to happen. God calls you to action. You you lean on the relationships when you face discouragement. You Mm. remember God's goodness in times past, and you resist the urge to quit. When you do that, you handle discouragement like an influencer for the kingdom. If I had to answer that question, that's what we titled this message this morning, how do influencers handle discouragement? I would answer it in one word, together. We handle it together. No one is alone. No one goes it alone. We do it together. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father, how we thank you for uh, just a, a wonderfully practical look at such a common feeling of discouragement uh, not only in the world, but God, in, in your family. And, and how we handle that is you've laid it out here in the life of Nehemiah and certainly in a very practical and, and, and transparent story from, from James here. And, and I pray, God, that, that you would just give courage to, to look honestly at our lives, all of us, and ask that question, when discouragement comes, who am I leaning on? Is there someone I lean on? Or is it just mm-hmm. me trying to get through it? Because, Lord, we recognize that if it's just me, I'm probably not going to get through it. That's right. It takes a family, and you've given us that here in this local body. I pray we embrace it, we remember your goodness, and we resist 
the temptation to run. How we love you and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Easter Sunday. Grab Easter an invite Sunday. card. You know, it would be the first Easter in 40 years that I attended like a Christian. Woo! He's stepping out by himself. Here we go. Easter Sunday out there. Let's and do I'm, I'm going to sit back and be one of y'all. Yeah. Late. <laughs>